Hi, this is Kim Mitchell, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let me first of all congratulate you on, on your induction into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Thank you. That, um, that caught me by surprise. You, as, as a musician that has had platinum albums, gold albums, and Juno Awards uh, in Canada, that's sort of the choir equivalent of, of Grammys, um, you kind of know those are coming. You get nominated for a Juno Award, and you're like, oh, well, at least I'm nominated. There's a chance of winning. You get sales reports from record companies and stuff. So you go, oh, it sounds like this thing's going to go gold or platinum. But the Canadian Songwriter Hall of Fame just kind of sideswiped me. I wasn't ready for it. I thought they were going to talk to me about royalties or something. They wanted to meet with me. And, and they <laughs> said, well, I did, because they're, they're the same people that collect your royalties. So I thought, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's something. Maybe they owe me money, <laughs> or, or, may, or maybe they paid me too much and want it back. <laughs> so I said, uh, you know, they went, we want to induct you into the Canadian Songwriting Hall of Fame. And I started to think who's in there, which was Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. Um, it's an impressive of, list. Yeah, and I was like, what am I doing? What are they doing? What am I doing going in here? And they said, man, and it's not just one song. We want to induct your whole body of work. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. I was kind of didn't see it coming. And then you go, wow, you start to think about what a dysfunctional bunch that's in there already. And, and you go, <laughs> well, well, do you know any happy songwriters? Do you know, I have, I have this theory. I have this theory that, that there's those people that, and I love these people. I know these kind of people. They're always up. They're always positive. Hey, Kim, how you doing? Oh man, yeah. And and they're just happy, happy, happy. And and you know when life sort of kicks them in the crotch, they're like, oh well, you know that things like that happen once in a while. But you know it's everything's gonna be fine. And the way they look at at life, which is a beautiful thing like that, more of us should do that. But I find that they're not songwriters. They usually are. <laughs> they're they're usually in tribute bands. Right. So, so, so um, I say this all with, uh, you know, as I kind of joking with Jess, but I find the really sort of deeper songwriters are somewhat troubled. They've had trouble in their life. They've either had addictions, they've had relationship problems. And um, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I mean, I haven't had addictions, but, uh, you know, there's a few dysfunctional things that I could they could write on my gravestone one day. You know? <laughs> um, don't you think it's part of being very reflective and somewhat intelligent that you, that maybe that's why songwriters aren't happy? You're, you're the first person who's ever called me intelligent in my life. <laughs> but um, you should hear what my friends call me. But um, you make a, a point there. What I think it is is, we open our eyes and we watch. That's one thing I was told a long time ago by a, a person I, I really was a huge fan of, and he was my lyricist in Max Webster. Pi Dubois was his name. And I said, and he's also being inducted, correct? Yes, that's correct. And he and I said, Pi, you know, man, where you, where do you get this stuff? He says, I open my eyes and I listen. I open my ears and I open my eyes and I listen. He said, that's all you really have to do. He said. People are saying this stuff. Just watch human beings and watch life. And I was like, wow, that, that's so true. So 
this is all coming from people, not necessarily, I'm not the one coming up with it, I don't think. So I think it's just why we have to stay open. Whereas the real happy people, they're like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> just everything's just flying by them too fast. <laughs> but I, I was going to say, the really happy people, and I know who you mean, but um, do you have when friends those like people, I do, but I also find that those people, when they're down, it's not pretty. Do you know what oh. I mean? Like they, it takes a lot to get them sure. unhappy, but when they're not happy, it's yeah. maybe it's just the 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 um, just maybe because you're so used to them being happy, and then when you see them down, it's just such a big difference. Well, but. yeah. The, you, you're making a cool point, but I honestly can say I know a few really happy people, and I honestly can say I've never seen them really down. <laughs> so it's a it's a short lived moment. While in between, while they take a sip of coffee and pick up their fork to eat the second bite of their pie, it's like, oh yeah, that was really terrible. Like oh, the pie's really good tonight, eh? It's, on they go, they move on. And, and <laughs> I think that's a strength. That's a strength that as someone who isn't that that I wish I was sometimes. But, okay, so do you find yourself writing, um, is writing a lot easier when you're not happy? <laughs> well, it's where our fuel comes from. When you think about it, like getting back to being inducted in the Canadian Songwriting Hall of Fame and looking at who else was in there, it's like, well, yeah, the, everything that's happened to these people uh, that these artists, it's, this has been their fuel. This is the fuel for songs. Um, and I'm not saying you can't, you didn't, you know, there aren't happy songs in the world. There's lots of them, but boy, you listen to some Joni Mitchell stuff. Good Lord. You know, it's, it's, it's like really coming from a deep, painful place. And, um, she's lived some, she's lived some life huge. Same thing with Neil Young physical challenges, uh, addiction challenges. So, But but I wonder, okay, so on the other hand, you've also written some pretty happy songs. I have, Maybe for sure, happy's yeah. not, yeah. Yeah, yeah So do they come from a happy place or like like something like I Am A Wild Party? Like, obviously, you're not writing that when you're really in the depth of depression. No, 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 no. <laughs> we, have, we have, and I'm not saying that any one of these people aren't happy at some point. I am. I have lots of good happy fun times with my friends but i just think for to be a songwriter and really get into that you really have to be able to open yourself up and to let whatever feelings are going to come out you have to really be vulnerable you have to you know basically put yourself in a department store window with no clothes on and um it's sort of an image I have of, of, of songwriters. It's like your 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 emotions and you're right on display. So um, and that's good because really what we're doing is we're including our audience and our, and our our people who are in our lives. So. And I'm sure you've written things and people come up to you and tell you how much a song meant to them that maybe you didn't even see it being that effective or whatever. Um, Do you know what I mean, like it's such a subjective thing. Yeah, yeah, that's always uh, kind of a mind-blowing, humbling thing when people come up and make a comment about my music, whether it be a story. And, and a, it was a drummer that I had once. He goes, do you know there's something in common about everybody that comes up and says hello to you? And I'm like, what? He says, 
they all have a Max Webster story or a Kim Mitchell story and they all tell you about it. And it's just a beautiful thing. And I'm like, I agree. It's like, well, my, my girlfriend and I drove around with your cassette tape in the late seventies in the, in the truck of my, <laughs> and, 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 or, you know, some folks, a song that not many people know, I get messages on social media. That was our wedding song. And just stuff like that is so beautiful. It's kind of really humbling to know that you were a small piece of someone's musical fabric. In their yeah. Life. It's, or the soundtrack to their lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a little piece of it. And that's, that's, uh, that to me, that stuff means just as much as a, uh, gold record hanging on the wall or probably more so it's just it's real human beings face I to can face imagine. yeah good face yeah. to face yeah, so so when when you first started getting into music and pick, picking up the guitar i presume the goal was to become a good guitar player would they, that be correct yeah that that process started when i was really young too that was around five years old watching elvis presley sitting on my father's lap and and they said that they sensed that it wasn't the adoring fans obviously you don't understand that as a five-year-old they said you were just so into the guitar so much that they went and got me a, a cheap little stella guitar and I played it and played it and played it. Apparently, I mean, you're five years old, six years old. You're not playing it. You're bashing it. And <laughs> you don't know how to tune it. But you're, I was so into it that I think I drove them nuts because one day, I remember this moment, my mother grabbed the guitar from me and threw it down the stairs into the basement and it broke. So, you know, it's just like, enough. That's enough playing the guitar. <laughs> you know, it's like taking a toy away from a kid. Ah, it's, I've had enough of that. It's, it's driving me nuts. And they saw how that affected me. So around 11 years old, I, they bought me uh, another guitar, electric guitar, sort of electric acoustic, and, and got me a teacher. And that's kind of where my journey began. And at 12 years old, I was playing in little bands and stuff and playing little parking lots with, with kids. And then um, for then, you know, high schools and then leaving home. I quit, quit home and quit school at 17 and moved to the city of Toronto, uh, three hours away, Toronto, Canada. And, and sort of that's, and that's where I feel that I really paid some dues there because we were all in a house, a band. We had one roadie that we could afford and a girlfriend who sort of, uh, she looked after us in, in, in a lot of ways. She sort of, uh, you know, she took care of the rent, made sure our rent was paid. I mean, we were paid, but we were like, a, you know, young musicians didn't know what we were doing. And, but uh, she, I remember her, her name was Evelyn and she was wonderful and she was the bass player's girlfriend and um, a real sort of calming thing in the house rather than <laughs> a bunch of crazy musicians. And, but that was, that was a hard time because our fridge was out back of the house because the landlord wouldn't give us a fridge that even worked. He didn't, you know, we said, hey, our fridge doesn't work. I don't care. We'll get it, get it. Just get it fixed and you're paying $150 a month rent for a whole house. So we had food out back and the band had to break up when the weather got too warm because we couldn't keep food cold. So it, it was pretty crazy. Um, so next, can I ask you, yeah, go when, you, when you left Sarnia to go to the big city, Toronto, what, would, what was in your mind? Like, what would, did you hope to accomplish? Well, I just hoped to accomplish making, you know, kind of you're 17. 
I hope I can make it. And, and I don't mean make it famous. I hope I can make it being a guitar player. Um, I've just quit school. The, the idea of becoming a dentist or uh, whatever the heck I else I had on my mind was now out the door. And, and I was a musician. I mean, I'm sure you can go back, which I did almost go back uh, about a year and a half later. But um, I just wanted to, and we did, we jammed and we got gigs and for a little while there, things were looking really good. And like I say, until the, it got, the warm weather came, we was like, well, we can't feed ourselves. So, you know, so we have to go. So every, everybody sort of packed up and moved back to Sarnia. And I stayed in Toronto for a little while and got some commercials. I remember doing some playing on some commercials and sort of getting a little bit of work that way. And then moved back. Uh, and right as I was about to go to school, you get a phone call from a keyboard player. And he goes, is this Kim Mitchell? He goes, yeah, yes. My name's Jim. He says, um, are you gigging? And I'm like, no, no. He goes, do you want to come on the road with a show band? I'm like, what's a show band? He goes, well, this is, he says, it's a male and a female singer. And we play like, it's a show. We play nightclubs five nights a week. And I said, oh, wow. That's, that's okay. Maybe. Yeah. That's steady work. You're saying, he goes, yeah, it's like, we're working like money all the time. And I said, well, what's a pain? He goes, 150 bucks a week. I said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a little while. That took me to the Greek Island of Rhodes. So that's the reason you went to the Greek islands? Yep, because the lead singer name was Alex Kuzinakolis. He was a Greek guy, and his family was building a nightclub, which we didn't know at first. And then one day he goes, hey, you guys all want to come to Greece? I'm, my, my parents' nightclub and restaurant's going to open up over there. And uh, whoever wants to come, we'll, we'll fly you over, and you'll get a – I mean, it wasn't a huge wage, but it was a paid vacation. We had a place to stay, and it was amazing. <laughs> Well, that's something. And is that not the place where you kind of um, reacquainted yourself with Pai Dubois? Well, that's right. Pai Dubois was a Sarnia uh, guy from the town I grew up with. And then I saw him on and off in Toronto a little bit. But we, I, I didn't really even know he wrote that much. Every once in a while, there'd be pieces of paper. And I'd see him writing stuff down. But um he, I don't know how he contacted me over there. He goes, but I'm, he says, I'm going to come over and drop in and say hello to you because I'm going to be traveling through Turkey and stuff like that. He's doing a sort of a little bit of a backpack tour. And I said, yeah, sure. I'm on the Isle of Rhodes. I'm in the town of Rhodes. It's just outside the old town where we're staying. That's all I said. And one day it was an apartment, a three bedroom apartment. And one day I hear the apartment door open up and, he, and I hear this guy walking down the hall. My bedroom was the last one on the, on the right. And the door opens up and I'm sitting there practicing my guitar. And I, and I look up and I go, pie? Like, how do, how, do, how do you find, how did you find me? I like thousands and thousands. He goes, well, he says, I just, I asked a couple of Greek people. I said, do you know any Canadian musicians? He goes, yeah, I think they're over there in that building over there. So he didn't even say wow. what floor. So it was kind of, and we wrote our first tune there. Um, and then Which is pretty he, amazing. Because yeah. I mean, that changed your life i guess that was a life-changing moment because it was the first song we ever wrote and then that would end up being part of the whole catalog that we ended up writing together so then he took off to turkey and and then we met back up in toronto uh, a year later because i went back to study am i talking too much no no okay um you you go you move back to toronto because 
you, you want to take guitar lessons from a specific teacher. So you kind of hook it up so that, well, you're going to need to be in a band. You're going to need to make some work. So that's how Max Webster sort of started with uh, Mike Tilka, the bass player, who used to be a school teacher. And he wanted to move to Toronto and start a band. So we sort of started that. Our first jam, it was really awkward. We, we got together and jammed, and, and I was expecting, okay. And it was just really awkward and kind of shitty. I, I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. But, you know, kept, kept at it because I wanted to be in Toronto and take lessons from this guy. And that was my focus. And then it just sort of started to gel a little bit. And I think that's just out of you start to get to know somebody. They're playing. You start to practice. Practice makes perfect. You just start to become a little bit more of a well-oiled machine. And that's can I, can I ask when, when I'm going to keep coming back to the songwriters thing, partly because of the the Hall of Fame thing, but also because it, it fascinates me. But at that point, um, how important was songwriting to you? Well, I didn't know a thing about songwriting. I'll be honest with you. I was just sort of, I started just jamming with chords and jamming with stuff and he'd jam with the English language and somehow a, a song would come together. But I had no sense of chorus or a bridge or tension building. I just, it was all just a visceral kind of weird thing that I just go, Oh, I think that should go next. Oh, I think that should go next. And so I knew nothing about formatics of songwriting. Um, but do you think that's important? I think it's really important. I think the okay. knowing the format and, and I mean, even some of the artists that I grew up with who are just, crazy i was a huge captain beefheart fan right. and when i listened to his stuff i used to think this is the most bizarre brave this is the bravest music i've ever heard and yet it had structure to it it's like okay well there, there's something going on here there's anyway um yeah so i think i think at least learning about the formatics of songwriting i mean i heard the rolling stones would spend hours and hours and hours on arranging a rolling stone song so um and I, I just I just didn't know how to do any of that at first, but yet we recorded. And and then when you I mean when um, I just got not I guess within the last year I got the Max Webster box set, and oh. I listened to that especially the first album, and to me those songs are amazing. Like they just you know it amazes me how it tests stands the test of time. Yeah, that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. But it's like Lily is such a beautiful song. Oh, um, yeah, thanks. It's like timeless to me. So um, to me, it's hard to imagine that you weren't feeling comfortable about writing songs at that point because I thought some of those songs are pretty incredible. Um, yeah, well, that's a very nice compliment. Thank you. And when people do bring up Max Webster, they often bring up that first record just because of its raw, uh, raw energy and um there was a guy i really respected uh i'm not i think he managed some band but i, I just loved w listening to him talk about music and i thought he really knew a lot about music and he hated our first record he was just like you know you guys you guys are way better than this live and i'm not sure how you blew it so bad on your first record wow. that's what he said uh, and so that I, that carried that around for a long time because it's just somebody who you who you kind of look up to their opinion and it wasn't like oh that's okay yeah that's good for first arc it's like no no man you guys missed the boat like huge on this and um so i didn't hang around with them anymore <laughs> <laughs> but what else did that comment do for you 
it made me go into high class and borrowed shoes a little more. Uh, I'm not going to say aggressive or pissed off or I'm not sure what the word was, but it was more like, okay, all right. It, it, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of someone telling you something and then you kind of go like, you know, look at the shitty job you did cleaning my car and you go, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, wait. All right. And the next time you, <laughs> next time you're like, I'm going to do this way better. And that's kind of how we went into the session. That's, I find that, I mean, I, because I love that album so much, but as you put The first one, you mean? The first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the second was great too, but, but um, for somebody to say that, I, I can, I just think that's an unfair statement. But well, maybe I, he everybody knew, has their own. I, he, he saw us play live a lot, so. Um, that's why I sort of, he was around the band a lot. And, right. um, so I sort of, and, and every time he talked about mu just music in general and stuff, he seemed to really just be kind of in tune with the whole vibe. And well, anyway, I've said what I was going to say about it. So. But, but I find it interesting that, I mean, I, I would imagine that Max Webster was known as a live band. Yeah, more, we were. Like that was the thing, but I, I know there are a lot of bands who are considered great live bands who have trouble recording or capturing that same energy in the studio. Did there's, you feel that? Yeah, there's a million reasons I've pondered and examined about that. I wasn't a fan of the recording studios in Toronto. It was always a big guessing game to me. Um, it always seemed like when we record, um, how can I describe this? You record... And then you take it out of the studio and you listen to it on something that you sort of trust, a set of speakers or a system that you trust. And I was always like, ooh, ooh, I don't like that. That, that sounds kind of crappy. Like, how come, there's no, how come there's no treble? How come there's no top end? And, you know, it really wasn't until I recorded in, in, the, in the States once. And I was like, wow, this, this is way different. This is like... Um, and it was that was way later too. This is like working with a producer by the name of Joe Hardy and going to Memphis. And actually, I, I stand corrected. He came up to Toronto and we went in a studio and he brought all his stuff. He brought like three huge cases of gear that he uses. And, and I remember cutting the first track on it. And I was like, "This sounds like a record already. That's like a bed track." And I was just like, "Wow, good hands here." So I don't know. I have all kinds of theories why. It was a challenge, sort of the red light paranoia. It's the same thing as, some, as you walking into a doctor's office and your blood pressure goes up. It's called the white, white, yeah, yeah. you know, the white coat. So there's a little bit of that. It, it's a strange environment for a band who cut their teeth on a stage live, played all the time, and now you're in a studio. Now it's like, okay, it's record time. <laughs> I, you know. And you'd always have, yeah, you'd always have demoitis too. You always like do a little demo on a four track tape machine and go, that thing has more vibe than what we're getting here. You know, so let's, let's, let's get it together here. Um, was there a point where you actually felt comfortable in the studio or more comfortable in the studio? No, I've, I've no, I, I can't say I, there is until, as I say, Joe Hardy, uh, rest in peace, came up and recorded itch and i was like wow okay now my job is just a gold vibe on guitar because everything was inspiring all of a sudden the sound of my guitar i was like wow i really love what that's doing and 
I'd stand in the control room even sometimes and play, and it was just like sounded so cool and great. And so that's that's how you want to feel when you're when you're making a record. You don't want to be like, ooh, why does it sound weird? Why? Yeah, yeah. yeah so. Max must have had what five, six albums. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I remember around five or six. And then, albums. and were you happy with the progression? Because the band changed like musically. Yeah, as, yeah, and, and so it should. Yeah, we did, we had different variants and. But it was always, it was a wonderful time. I, I'm not going to diss it at all. We did really well for what we were doing. We uh, toured a lot with, got to tour with, with Rush. We did all kinds of stuff. And, uh, um, you know, people, people were so, sort of a cult following. And we were sort of right on the verge, I felt, af after the fact. I was going a couple of years later, I thought, we really were right on the verge of, I'm not going to say making it, but but do, becoming sort of a a larger cult band. Like we were just starting to get gigs, you know, promoters were going, all right, Hammersmith Odeon in London, England, uh, this here in, in Germany and blah, blah, blah. Let's put together this European. And, and in the States, you can go do Cleveland, you can go do Detroit, you can go do, you know, so we sort of started to get that sort of thing going. And so I, I love that career. You're talking about different variants, variations of the band. I loved them all. I, I loved even the one with Dave Stone on Hammond, Oregon, and Dave Miles on bass guitar. That band live, I still see footage once in a while. I'm like, man, that's we're like flying pretty pretty intense at that point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, when when you said about making it, was that how much of a goal was that for a musician like yourself? Well. You, you obviously are thinking about it. It's, it's, it's not a goal for me. The goal has always been to, to really enjoy playing the music you're playing, be inspired by it and have an audience. But everyone around us was making it, you know, rush. were like starting to sell tons of records bands. We were opening up for, they're doing really well. So I think because we're a little eclectic, we realized that I realized this probably isn't going to happen for us on this level. So that's kind of part of the reason I started to become burnt out creatively and, and pulled the plug. Was that a difficult decision? Cause I was going to ask you what made you decide that Maxwell still would be no longer a band? Well, that's kind of what it was. I just became uninspired and, um, uh, or cre yeah, just kind of creatively burned out mostly. And and it was a pretty easy decision. Just go, I think I'm going to take a year off and do some writing. I think that's what I'll do. And that was kind of my intent. It wasn't to, I mean, I sort of said, yeah, we're done. But it didn't mean we're never going to see each other again or we're never tour together. It was more, um, you know, just more, I want to take some time off and write. Right. And so at this point, you're thinking that um, writing is songwriting is very important to you. Or I presume it was probably came before that. But the, the fact that you thought I would spend a year writing songs. Tell me about that process. Well, the, I really I love writing songs and I love the follow through of writing songs. And I started to find out something about myself, learn something about myself as a human being. As I, a lot of things I don't follow through on or haven't followed through on. But when it comes to songwriting, I do. 
I love to bring that song to its conclusion and get it to where I love it. So I started, you know, yeah, that year off, I really was focused on writing songs and wasn't really thinking about playing in any band. And then I thought, okay, well, after a year of doing that, I kind of went, how about uh, I join a band? So I put the word out and it's like, anybody want me in their band? And my phone didn't ring. So um, I thought, okay, well, now it's time to start my own band, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and is it, We don't is want it... that weird guy in the band. <laughs> Tim Mitchell? No way. You're talking about the guy who wrote Beyond the Moon and Toronto Donalds and Here Among the Cats? No, no, no. No, we want to we want to do well. We don't want that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, who's laughing now? <laughs> um, and is this around the time that you sat down with Rick Emmett to talk about songwriting? Yeah, uh, no, that was a little bit later, but yeah, I ran into Rick Emmett and uh, was yeah, I was sort of starting off my my solo career. I think I had the mini album under my belt, and he was he came up to me and goes, Kim. Do you know about do you know about songs and and what they're made up of and do you know about a chorus do you know what a B verse is and I'm like well B verse what's a B verse and and he goes you you know what the the what a bridge is supposed to do I'm like a bridge and and so he taught me he's like about spent about a half an hour telling me about you know there's a verse and then there's a B verse a B verse of a song is a pre-chorus or it's you know you build tension to to a chorus to something that is going to be memorable about the song. And uh, I mean, some of this, you, you sort of, you look at them like, well, why would I want to listen to this guy? But but I did, I was like really into what he was saying. He says, you know, the bridge in a song, you say you're riding on a riff the whole song and then the bridge is going to be this deviation, this musical deviation, a lyrical deviation sometimes off of what you've just been saying. A great, here's a great, thing of what I'm talking about. Tina Turner's song, What's Love Got to Do With It. Right. It's 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 such a, a cool bridge that because it's like, what's love got to do with it, got to do that's a chorus and happens. And then there's the verse thing. But then all of a sudden the bridge comes along and goes, I've been thinking about a new direction. Yeah. The different chords, a different melody. I've been on and on to attention. And only and it's just such a beautiful thing. So I started to study stuff like that, you know, bridges and songs. And and so when I would write, I'd sort of had a little mental checklist, not do I have these, more like does it need it? It's sort of like just a little beacon to go back to while you're writing a song and go, how's the B verse in this? Is it, is it the right thing? Is it, you know, it's just, I mean, part of it is you're just flowing writing a song, but you know, part of it is also checking in on yourself to go, uh, does it need, does it need a bridge? No, it doesn't need a bridge. Okay. No, no. If I were to do a bridge, I'd do this. Does that add to the song or is that, no, it's not really even adding anything. So never mind. So just that kind of dialogue going on. But okay. So like the, your latest single wishes, Yep. you've been working on that for 10 years. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, like it's, yeah, 10 years. So how do you know when a song is done or it that it me. needs a lot more work? It tells me. Wishes didn't need a lot of work. It, it, it was a poem from 10 years ago uh, that I saw in a waiting room, and I wrote it. 
fairly quick after I got the book delivered to my house. And that, but that was just the verses. And like, I looked at the poem, went, this is such a complete, beautiful poem. And then when I listened to it in a song, at least my song, I was like, it's not complete. As, as a song, it doesn't feel right yet. It, there's something missing. There's maybe, there's a couple things maybe missing. There's a verse and that's it. And it didn't even change chords in the verse much as tweaks. So I, I feel that the song is telling me this stuff. I don't feel like I'm the guy coming up with it. I, I, I said this a couple times, I'm the song's roadie. Um, it's telling me what it needs. And, right. and so I'd check in on it a couple months later and are we good? What do you want me to do? Is it try, <laughs> try a couple things. And I can sense that the song itself, I know I'm talking like the song is a living thing, but it's like, it chose me, man. It was up in the universe. And for some reason, I opened a book of poetry, which I would never do, as opposed to looking at an old, outdated reader's digest. So thankfully, that it chose me as a conduit to bring me to life. So I'm, I have to serve this thing. And it took a long time until I found the right parts. And I, I tried a whole bunch of different stuff even had other people try to write a couple parts to it and nothing felt like it it belonged and then just five months ago i was playing the song i stopped playing the guitar i kept singing a melody and it just the lights went on i went "Ooh, that sounds like that melody belongs there's a chorus oh my god there it is and now it needs a musical deviation about 20 minutes later i came up with the 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 g chords to the f to the a minor seventh and there's a little melody going on it's like oh and it was like the song was going, that's it. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. That took a long time to thanks. You know what? And then the song went, you know what, man? I'm going this way. You go that way. I'll see you later. Thanks a lot. And that's what it kind of felt like. Wow. I mean, I've heard other musicians talking about songwriting and how oftentimes things just come out of them, that they have no control. And then within five minutes, their most famous song was written. Uh, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stories like that, including my producer, Greg Wells, who said, you know, he's had a lot of hits. He goes, do you know that 90% of the hits that I've produced, they were like the first or second take? I said, you got to be kidding me, because there's some pop stuff that's pretty accurate. He goes, no, no, I'm telling you, it's like it w things went pretty quick. And, <laughs> and we never knew, and nobody ever knew. It was like, apologized by one republic they didn't you know they didn't even want the song on the record and neither did the record company and greg my producer the guy going no 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 i really let's just just let me try it and they sort of worked it up pretty quick and look what happened um well patio lanterns for you was something like that was it not well patio lanterns was the opposite it was it was but you didn't want it on the album no, 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 it wasn't. I, you know, I, you know, I was like sitting on a really uncomfortable chair that you, you, you know, it's like, ah, that's not where, oh God, you know, that's why it was a pain. And, and I'm like, oh man, what's, what's going on here? It took me three days to sing the song. It took us a long time to record it. So what's it like that relationship with you and your song? Cause there must be songs that you thought were really amazing that didn't do well or chart well on the radio. And there must be other songs, like yep. Radio Lanterns, that you didn't think much of, and then it becomes a big hit for you. Well, everyone else loved Patio Lanterns, and I was like, because I just had a hard time with it. I knew we had to axe a couple tunes. And I said, hey, man. And they're like, remember the meeting? Right? 
what songs would you take off, Kim? We need to take two off because we can't get it on on our vinyl record. I'm like, well, I'd take this and Patio Lanterns off. I can't remember the other one. And everyone kind of went, oh, no, man, I really like Patio Lanterns. It's different for you. I'm like, okay, well, whatever you whatever you think. <laughs> I'm out. You guys do what you want. It was kind of like one of those moments. And then it, it really happened. It, was, uh, it did really well in Canada. So what does a hit mean to you? I, I don't know if I find out. I'll poke its eyes out. Um, I, I don't really know. I don't know what I... If we knew what it was, we'd be doing it. And so um, a hit for me is a hit for me is just getting a song to where you love it. Beyond that, when you're talking about hit, you're talking about how people's reaction to it. I can't, yeah. contr I can't control that. And, and, you know, I honestly don't try not to think about that stuff when you're writing, you're, you're a songwriter, you're writing a song. And um, once again, to bring up my producer, he's, he's, uh, he's friends with, um, what's his name? Um, that's Michael Jackson's producer. Quincy, yeah, Quincy Jones. Yeah. And he was telling me one day, not Quincy, but my producer was telling me, he was like, you know, he's, he's friends with Quincy. He said, Quincy, when they're making Thriller, just they weren't really sitting there trying to do hit songs they just go oh that's kind of a cool part yeah let's do that yeah that feels good it just based on the musicians that were in the room at the time like oh man that sounds really good when you play it like that yeah okay cool and michael would be weighing in with it too and and they just sort of almost sounds like they were throwing it together and getting it done pretty quick so they weren't sitting there going well we need something for the radio well we need this well we need that I mean, in the back of Quincy's mind, maybe he was having pressures from the record company to, but when it comes down to making the music, man, you, you can't have, let any of that chatter in the studio as far as I can say, just ruin But you. does it, do things get distorted once you have hits? I don't know, I'll let you know if I ever have one, man. <laughs> well, you have had hits, right? Like Go For Soda. I mean, there's a lot of FM staples as well. Sure. Do things get distorted? Um, you mean your view of? Yeah, yeah. No, not for me. No, it's not like, ooh, go for soda. I'll write more of that. That's not me at all. I can't control what I write. It's just something something comes down from the universe up there. And next thing you know, I'm writing a song. Because the next, the next song I could be writing could be a song like Easy to Tame or uh, All We Are or something different or Wishes. Um, so, and I'm not, I don't stop that process. I don't sit there and go, well, you know what? I better not write this because I, I now have mouths to feed and I have to do this. I, I never have gone after that. And it seems to work that way. And, and Greg Wells backs me up on that huge. He's like, no, we don't let any of that outside chatter ever come into your into the studio, into the creative process. Just do what you love and get it to how you love it. And he said, beyond that, that's all you know. You can do. So as a musician, do you work more on songwriting than your guitar playing? Uh, no, I've had work on my guitar playing often um, and have throughout the years, just because I kind of still see myself as a guitar player first or just as much as a songwriter. Um, oddly enough, on this new record, I sort of didn't push the guitar playing aside, but I 
kept the focus that on the big fantasize, I'm going to serve the song. That's what I'm going to do. And if that means it needs some shredding here, or if it doesn't need some shredding, or if it doesn't even need guitar, there's a song on the album. It's called Georgian Day. And it's about a body of water that I would love. I love boating on with my kids when they're young. And there's no guitar on it. It's piano, bass, drums, and a five-piece horn section. And and the first thing, you know, people who are giving me feedback and stuff are like, hey, man, get your guitar in there, you know, doing some chicken picking stuff. And I'm like, no, it doesn't need it. it. There's an energy popping out of this tune that it's there. It, my guitar playing will add nothing other than it won't even add. It'll take away from it, maybe. So. You know, these, you know, I'm, I'm really happy I stood up for that moment because a few people were saying, where's the guitar? You're Kim Mitchell, where's the guitar in the song? I'm like, listen to the song. It's like pumping along like crazy. With, you know, it's kind of jazzy with a four-piece horn section. The bass playing on it is ridiculous. Bass part that's just like, I think bass players' heads are going to swim and go, man, I want to isolate that track and learn it. Wow. Are you excited about the new album? Yeah, yeah, sure am. It's been a while. Yeah, sure has. I'm very excited. I'm very proud of it. So I never thought in a million years I'd get to record with Greg Wells, who was actually in my band at 17, but he has been such a successful dude down there in Los Angeles. And for him to ring me up and go, I've heard your demos, like, let's go. This is a side of you that people need to hear more. Come down to Los Angeles. Let's record. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> let's do it. Wow. Yeah. In promoting the new album, you did a um, a live feed from Alma Combo recently, and you actually played a bunch of stuff on the acoustic guitar, which sounded amazing. Do you write mainly with the acoustic? Is that the way most of the songs have no uh, were started? No. First of all, thank you for your compliment on the acoustic because it's a terrifying. It's not terrifying <laughs> at home. I love playing acoustic guitar because nobody's watching. But as soon as somebody's in the room going, play us a song, I, I'm terrified and I choke. I, I'm not sure why, um, but I do. And I'm not that guy to go out and do a, an acoustic-y thing, but I forced myself to do it last tour, walk out on stage with the acoustic guitar, a beautiful female singer that's so talented. I, I just, you know, her, her voice and mine just rang so well together. She's on my new record as well. Her name's Laura Call. And uh, grand piano, my keyboard player played grand, grand piano, and we'd do acoustic thing for about four songs at the beginning of the night. It went over good, but um, no, I don't necessarily write all the time on acoustic guitar. Although little pieces, I mean, I'll, I've written stuff on keyboard, and I'm I'm not a piano player or a keyboard player. I was sort of bashing my fingers down on something like, oh, there's something, and <laughs> you know. Things, things start in the most unusual way. They'll start while I'm driving around even. I'll sing something into my phone. If someone ever stole my phone, they just have to look in the voice part of it, the voice recordings, and there's like a hundred ideas of songs there they can have. <laughs> <laughs> but like even your arrangement of Alana Loves Me, which was just, it was stunning the way you played oh, it. It was oh, just so you. different from the way I'm used to hearing it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do love to play. I think it's an expressive instrument. And I, one of the all-time great acoustic guitar players in my world is Jimmy Page. Everybody knows Jimmy Page is a rock and roller, but I just loved how expressive he was with his acoustic stuff. You know? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Nice. I want to talk about the radio gig you had at Q107. Um, what was it like to be on the other side, all of a sudden being on the radio side versus the music side? It was, was fun. Was that an adjustment? Yeah, oh, for sure. Well, let's just start off by saying you start something new in your life, you're going to suck at it. And I, it was, <laughs> it was a really terrible first year in radio for me. But uh, I wanted that. Well, how did wanted, that happen? Well, I, I wanted to get out of the house every Sunday. I thought, ah, let's do something Sunday. And I had a meeting with the radio station that I thought would be a good fit. It was a classic rock station. And, and they loved the idea. I said, oh, man, that's a good idea. Sunday night, Kim Mitchell show. That's awesome. And I never heard from them for months. I thought, I had even forgotten about it. And then the phone rings and it's like, Kim, it's uh, so-and-so at Q107. I'm like, hey, how you doing? It's like, um, our afternoon drive guy is leaving. Would you like a full-time job? I'm like, what? And I'm like, does this mean you are you saying I got to have to come in every day? They went, yeah. And I'm like, let me call you back. And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, this is a cool challenge I want to try. So I thought, why not? And I did. And I prioritized it for them. I played on weekends only. And I had an 11-year radio career that I just loved. And I think I'm a self-deprecating guy, but I think I brought something kind of cool to that station, which was, as a musician on the, on a classic rock station, he's toured with a lot of these bands they're playing, you know, mm-hmm. and not toured, but done gigs with them. And when some of these musicians would come in, it wasn't like, Sal, who are your influences? You know, it wasn't questions like that. It was like real cash stuff. Remember Andy Summers, the police coming in and his handlers going, do not ask him to play. Like don't <laughs> ask him to play anything. But I had, I had a, you know, a setup in the studio, a couple of guitars, and and I knew I dialed up a, the police sound on on an electric guitar, and I'm sitting there with him. I go, "Hey, man," I said, "You know, like those changes in every breath you take are really basic changes, but the inversions, the chords you use are are really interesting and sort of make the tune." I said, "So special," you know, and I said, "I've I've tried to figure it out for ages," and I picked up the guitar and I just played one of the chords. I said, I, th- I think this is one of them, right? And it was all of a sudden the police sound. It was like his sound. He goes, no, no, man, here, give me the guitar. I'll show you. And just it's stuff like that that I think I brought to yeah. the station that was a lot of fun. When you said you were terrible, um, how oh. difficult was to overcome that feeling? Hard work, respecting the craft, meeting with your boss every day, doing air checks, uh, learning about the, the craft. and. Um, you know, you're walking into a gig that there's a, a bunch of other radio people want to do it, and they probably should be doing it. They're in line to do it. They've cut their teeth. They're ready to go. Um, and all of a sudden, you walk in, no training, and you're doing a, a the second largest shift on, you know, yeah. the biggest rock station in, in a major city. So there was a little attitude coming from them, and, they you know, they the audience really let me know that I sucked. And uh, one guy had made up an email address called IHateKimMitchell.com. And, <laughs> and he'd write me off, and I couldn't write him back because I tried to once. Just to, I know, simply, I was going to say, wow, it must be a slow day when you're making a, a, a whole email. <laughs> and, and you press send, and I was like, no, you can't. There wasn't even a real thing or something. But, um, uh, and then after about a year, I started to get some notes from other people in radio, and a couple of them really started to give me confidence. Like, hey, 
I can tell you've really been working hard and it's really improving. You need to know that. So whatever you're doing, keep working hard because you're, you're starting to do really well. And that's, that gave me the confidence to, all right, here we go. And I did it for 11 years. I presume radio meant a lot to you when you were growing up? Yeah, basically listened to a station called CKLW, the Big Eight, which was out of Windsor, Ontario. And I grew up mainly with Detroit rock and roll and Motown music. So radio, radio and record, you know, records themselves. But yeah, I used to walk around with a little earpiece. I mean, there was only mono radio back then. There wasn't even stereo. <laughs> so I walk around with a little little kid, 10-year-old, with this little earpiece on listening to Temptations and Four Tops and you know every once in a while uh, some rock and roll tune would come on from some Detroit band. I mean, one of the highlights of my career was was opening up for the MC5. And most people might wow. not most people might not even know that band, but we were young too, man. I'd be like I'd be like maybe 15 years old and we got to open up for them. The National Guard surrounded the perimeter of the gig. And I'd never seen anything like it. I remember sharing the dressing room with them, MC5, <laughs> and they come flying into this dressing room. And then, you know, we're like little guys from Sarnia kind of trying to look cool, but they walk in and all their clothes are made for them. They have what they had their M, which they called the MC5 Stompers, which were these women that were with them that made their clothes. Um, and any other woman who sort of got close, they'd stomp them out, you know? And it sort of was a, a interesting thing that they really looked after the band, the band security, everything. And these guys were just like crazy. It just came in and, and it was the first time, you know, I, I went over to brother Wayne Kramer and I said, he's changing his own strings. I said, dude, I said, do you change them? How often do you change your strings? Like a real nerdy, stupid question. Thinking he'll go, get away, kid. He goes, I, he goes, I change them every gig. I'm like, he, I said, wow, wh how do you, how come? And he goes, cause I bash the living daylights out of him every gig. So <laughs> I'm like, okay. And literally four songs in, he's just hammering this Stratocaster and it's gone out of tune, but in such a sweet way. It was just the most beautiful sound I'd heard. Like I, I'd, I would rather listen to his guitar out of tune any day than somebody who's perfectly in tune. There was just such a, energy being transmitted from it it was just it was a beautiful thing that was like a highlight of of my uh of my life just i can imagine it. yeah it was just crazy i just loved it as a kid grade six my brother had that album and i used to listen to it many mornings before i went to school the kick out the jams album yep yeah. so I, I know the band and i know the energy it's pretty pretty impressive yeah, um, Springsteen's guy who does a radio show, um, little little Steven, he came in and interviewed him, and 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 we're talking away about his thing and on the radio, and and then he mentioned MC Five, and I went, oh yeah, he goes, you probably, I don't know if you know MC Five, I said, yeah, I do, in fact, I opened for them, and he stopped and he went, man, your cred just went way up in my. <laughs> <laughs> that is an impressive thing to have in your resume. Yeah, being where you come from, which is on the the musician side, and yeah. being interviewed by radio all the time, how was it when you became the radio guy interviewing the musicians? Well, I think I once again I, I'm a self-deprecating guy, but I think I asked way better questions than what they were used to. Um, 
you know, I'd be like, rather than say, who are your influences or what can we expect from the show? To me, those questions, when a radio announcer asks me that, it, it, it says to me, you're not prepared. You don't really know who this is. And you do, you, you're just not prepared. You, you didn't do any work. It's like for, for someone to go, so tell us about the new record. Well, that's... It's, <laughs> it's a new record. Yeah, yeah, it's a new record. We, how do you want me to react to that? It's like, who are your influences? I feel like saying, dude, your audience doesn't give a shit who I was influenced <laughs> by. Like, they just don't. I'm not sure why that question keeps getting asked. Whereas if you say something like, what was the first record you heard that made you want to do what you're doing? You sort of did that today. And that's a, that's a, a way different question than, so who are your influences? And then the last one is, so what can we expect from the show? Well, let me tell you, if it was your birthday and I, was, I said, hey, I got a present, well, tell me what it is. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to tell you what it is. Do you want to know ahead of time what U2 is going to play for the whole show? Like, what can we expect? Well, I'll tell you what. We open up with this, and there's a bunch of lasers. And so I never ask those questions. I'd go, tell me what's going on in the dressing room 15 minutes before you go on. You know? Okay, what yeah. band, band member? Okay, out of all the band members, you're checking into, or you come, you have a lobby call. Who's always the last one? To, to arrive who's the one that's always late that's always getting into the transport going i'm really sorry guys because there's always i know these things go on so they used to find that sort of stuff just more fun and different yeah, to, yeah. to answer you know what's on what's on your catering table that you keep going god we got to get rid of that soon you know or <laughs> or you know why why do we have beer where nobody drinks beer i remember the stones they're like all of a sudden, one night they were doing a settlement, apparently, and because I know some some people uh, in sort of in that that area of work, and like Nick's checking receipts. And he's like, "What's beer doing on here?" And they're like, "Well, the and he goes, "Nobody in our entourage even drinks beer, so take that off." Like just stuff like that. So, <laughs> yeah. You know. What's the greatest thing you learned from that experience on radio? Well. For me, the most beautiful thing that happened was putting on a set of headphones every day and hearing the music I grew up with. Because I, I, while I thought I really knew that that stuff, like Led Zeppelin and and you know all all these bands, Heart and groups that made such beautiful records, that once you put headphones on and listen to it, I don't remember doing that. It was just like every day I'd be like turning stuff up and going holy shit, is that ever good? Does it ever sound good? And, and I caught myself many times. I had a producer with me, a producer like have to come on the mic, on the headphones and go, Kim, we're up in 30 seconds. Because I'd just be like, whoa, okay. You know, like I'm like kind of lost in the music. So, Did you program all your songs? No, no, the show's done all the time. And because of Canadian CanCon rules, some right. of my music would be played. And every time a Kim Mitchell song came up, I'd get emails going, Oh, there you are playing your own songs again. And you, you can't explain to them like, dude, the show was done. Yes. Like these songs were done by a computer and a music director like two days ago. And this song has to be played at this time because they right. played all the other CanCon. You can't get people think, I mean, not people, but a, a lot of radio fans think radio announcers go in and pick their songs. No, they don't. It's all. It's all done. It's all consultants with this and that. And yeah, so it's okay, though. 
I loved it. Um, I, I loved it. It was a really beautiful time in my life. Well, it's, I'm sure it would have been neat to also get that perspective as well, like just because mm -hmm. it's different, right? So. Yeah, and, and it allowed me to, I think, be a little bit different on stage in between songs. Uh, one of my colleagues in radio came out one night to see me play, and he goes, man, can you ever tell you had a radio career? Because like in between songs, you're like blasting out a few lines here and there, and you're into the next tune, and because it's, <laughs> it's really shows. We're at more than, you know, somebody else but i don't know what he meant by that really but but 11 years is you know that's a career in some ways mm -hmm. so it that's was. pretty amazing it was. it was um the other thing you went through some health issues not too many years ago are you doing okay now yep yep so far i mean we don't know how long we get to stay here none of us no. um so uh it was a an odd moment it was took i wasn't ready for it i didn't have any warning signs anything so and next thing you know, you're in an ambulance having a major heart attack. So, um, so it was a, a year rehab coming back, and so far everything seems to be good. But, like you say, you don't really know what's going on in there. How did that experience change you, or your outlook? The, the the normal stuff that everyone will say. You know, I wake up and I try and enjoy the good earth, and and that's what I do. And I try not to stress as much. I mean, there's still that stuff is part of life, but it's it's getting perspective on it. Like, yeah, this this next couple of days is going to be kind of stressful, so I better watch that. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's stuff like yeah. that. It's, you change little things, and some of it you don't change. Sometimes you you sometimes you find yourself in your car going, I really shouldn't be eating this hamburger and French fries right now, but man, is it ever good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to live, and, right? It it's exactly what my cardiologist said to me. And I walked in, I went, you know, I've been going through kind of a phase where I've been eating kind of shitty. And he goes, so you're living your life. And I went, yeah, okay, great. I mean, he goes, but that doesn't mean you can do it all the time. I said, no, no, but yeah, if you see the lamb on the menu and you want to eat the lamb, go ahead and order it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. What happens next? Do you have this new album? Are you working on more new material all the time? No, um, there's two two types of people during this pandemic. I think the ones that are really motivated, that go, yeah, I'm going to paint the house. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to rebuild that car. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to start baking this, or I'm going to you know I'm going to start building that. I'm going to yeah. do this for myself. And then there's the other ones that go, they walk up to something and go, eh, now later, walk away from it. That's me. So people are like, oh, you must be writing a bunch of tunes. I'm like, no, I rarely pick up the guitar. And if I do, I plunk away at it for 20 seconds and put it down and, you know, grab my dog Webster and go, hey, man, come on, let's go for a walk. Um, Kim, I've been a fan for a long time. Thank it's you. a real thrill for me to talk to you. Um, I actually met you once and I asked you about one of your songs, Sentimental Sailor. And I asked you about the single version and how I could get it. And you said, I have no idea. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. But it's, it kind of surprised me. Um, but you, And I, I presume because of that reason, you put it on the Greatest Hits album. So I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, th thank you. Um, I remember that. And you were talking about where can they find music. Well, at KimMitchell.ca, uh, they can hear the new song and uh, get links to that. And also, I'm on all the social media things, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Twitter, I'm under it, the Kim Mitchell, because I thought, hey, it's the Kim Mitchell, okay? Um, <laughs> not just a Kim Mitchell. There's lots of Kim Mitchell, but this is the Kim Mitchell. The. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for taking thank this you. time. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure speaking. Appreciate it. All right. We'll see you, Marco.